Our text this morning continues in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Talking about being holy and what it means to be holy. But listen to what Peter says. Verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Behold, because I am holy. Verse 17 says, Since you call, call on a father, you know, Abba Father, our dad, our spiritual dad, who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. That's what we want to talk about, that God is watching us. And there is a reverent fear we're going to talk about, but not the fear that you probably think about in the world today. You see, holiness is what we've been talking about. And holiness and fear of God seem to go hand in hand in this passage. But the question I come up with, and I think you will too, is, but why should I fear God, and what difference does it make when I do? There's a story about some kids, and they said it was a Catholic school, but they were getting ready to go through a lunch line, and on the end of the table, there was a big bunch of apples. And there was a nun standing there and saying, only take one apple, and God is watching you. Well, clear down to the other end of the table, there's a big plate of cookies, and the other kid had wrote on there, take all the cookies you want, God is watching the apples. <laughs> I love that second kid. I love that second kid. As I said, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about holiness. And we said holiness is about being set apart from the world, setting apart for what God wants from us. When God makes us holy, that means we are set apart for salvation. When we believed in Jesus and we repented and we confessed of our sins and we were baptized into Christ, we were made holy. In other words, we were set apart in God. And in your outline it says this, and when God says we should make ourselves holy, he means that we should live differently than the world. That we shouldn't be the same as what the world wants us to be. We should be completely different. He expects us to live differently. And this is what this passage is all about. I mean, he said in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Again, in other words, be different from the world around you. But why should we want to do that? What is it that should motivate us from, to be holy and to be different from this world? Now, I want you to understand, when I'm talking about being holy, I'm not talking about being some of these people who have the idea of being holier than thou, being holier than anybody else. Because I don't want to be that kind of person when I walk into a room or another group of people. Maybe it's out and about at the park and they see me walk up and the first thing they say is, oh no, here comes Kurt. What did I do wrong now? Or what, did, you know, and I don't want to be that person. You know, what are you laughing so hard at, Tracy? She's down here cackling at that. <laughs> the preacher voice. Oh, the principal voice, Yeah. I don't want to be that person when people see us say, oh, great, now what? It's like an I or a we, the only right ones in this group or in our church. And we have a world full of people who are kind of like this, that they, they have their idea, and it's only their idea that's right. And you can look at a uh, whole lot of different things about the social things in the world. You know, I've talked, people talk to me about this whole idea of the homosexual agenda. 
you know, is it really right? Is it really wrong? But, you know, this old person, they go to a church and they believe in God and they do all these things and they want an answer from me. But I'm going to tell you right here, right now, they want the answer they want to hear. It's not the answer that I want to give them, that it's wrong. Not in my eyes, but in God's eyes. You know, and you look at that, and you can also look at the abortion thing and how it's so willing to, for people to abort their babies. And when you're asking about that, again, they don't want your answer. They want the answer they want to hear. And you know what? I'll, I'll defend it, that God can forgive, and God will forgive, but it doesn't take away the fact that it's still killing a baby. You know, and so many people want their answer A person who was not a Christian, understand this, a person who's not a Christian, it didn't matter to them that God would not be happy with their choice. They don't care what God thinks. They don't care what God says. They don't care what we believe. So we need to understand that. If they love God, then this would be a matter, it would matter to them, and they would stop doing what they're doing and understand God's true love. But if you don't love God... All this other stuff doesn't matter. Again, we see it in the world, and I'm even going to say we see it in the church, that love for self is greater than their love for God. Get that. Too many times in our lives, the love for self is greater than the love we have for God. And you may take offense to that a little bit, and that's okay. Because I just woke you up a little bit. Maybe I made you mad a little bit. But it's true. Because we'll do a lot of things for ourselves before we'll do it for God. And we need to get, grab onto that. Now, daily, that's why we should do what we do in life. We should seek to be holy because we love God. Not that we love ourselves, not that we love the world, not that we love the things about our life, all those things that are good. God wants us to have all those things. But it's about love. It is only when we have the love of God in us that we have the holiness that he wants us to have. That we have to love like God loves. We have to love with the example that Jesus gave us. And we'll have this proper holiness. But what I seem to see in the world today and so many times, uh, and it's just not in our churches, but I can't take it out of our churches, but I see it a lot in this world is this self-righteous indignation. And many of us have been there. We've done this. We like it. It's seductive. In fact, they're saying it's actual addiction. And we have to admit that this self-righteous indignation is almost, it feels good to us. Let me explain what it is. It is the pleasure of knowing you are without a doubt, you're right, and the other person is so wrong on so many levels, no matter what it is. It is so satisfying for us who has a self-righteous indignation for for people to return uh, so often to this idea and to gain that feeling of satisfaction. I don't know if Dave and I may differ on this a little bit, but I think it's almost an addiction to people. You know, and this chemical gets released in their brain because it makes them feel so good that they can tell somebody they're so wrong in what they're doing. And even in our churches, what this self-righteous indignation kind of is, people will come to church not to fellowship, not to worship, not to be in the presence of God, but just to find something wrong. That light bulb has been burned out for the same week now. 
you know, that version of uh, the song we just sang, have just as, oh, what, I can't remember the name, Amazing Grace or whatever it was. That's not the version I like, Mary. How great thou art. I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, it's not the version that I liked, which, by the way, I liked it. You know what I mean? Or we come to find something wrong with what somebody says, and we'll take offense at it, and we're going to get them in the corner. We're going to say, you are so wrong. And when they try to defend it, there's no defending it because you know you're right. Let me explain it this way. It'd be easy for me to prove this if I could have a video camera and someone in a video, and I'm going to put on a hat that says, Make America Great, and I'm going to put on a T-shirt that says, Trump 2020, and I'm going to go stand downtown Danville. Now, if I don't get shot, <laughs> chances are, if I stand there long enough, somebody's going to walk up to me, or a group of people will walk up to me and tell me what? How wrong I am. Okay? And I could defend what I believe is all right about what's going on. You know, this is not political. This is just an illustration. And somebody's going to tell me how wrong I am. And if I try to defend it, what's going to happen? They're going to yell just a little bit louder. They're going to get a little bit stronger. Why? Because they know they're right and they know I'm wrong. And if we have this holier-than-thou attitude in the world, in other words, if I can't be with a group of people and endure some words that I don't use, you know, and I'm, wanna, pfft, I'm not going to hang out with you people anymore. Self-righteous indignation. Am I saying that's right? No. But I'm saying I love that person more than their language. I love that person more than their actions. I love that person more than whatever it is. I've told you this story when I was in Newmarket the first time. The old boy that when I went down to have coffee didn't start cussing until I walked in. Didn't start cussing. I mean, he would start dropping the F-bomb. I sat down in there with my cup of coffee, and we visited. I did this for almost two years. Then he got kicked out of one little gas station. He went out to the other one, so guess where old Kurt went? I followed him. <laughs> First time I walked in, had my coffee, he just went. <laughs> he didn't change until one day, one Saturday, we're having coffee. He made the comment, you come get me on Sunday morning. I'll go to church. <laughs> that next morning, I'm up, I'm ready. Well, I got plenty of time. I went out there with my cup of coffee and my shirt and tie on. He just put his head down again. I said, you said you wouldn't. All these other guys heard it. He came to church. When we left Newmarket to go to Hayworth, I went back and baptized him. He became a deacon in the church. When he had his open-heart surgery, I showed up at 5 o'clock in the morning after driving halfway there one night, getting up that next morning. He, didn't, he thought he was dead that I was standing over him, you know. <laughs> but I endured it. Not because I wanted somebody to think I was more self-righteous. You see, I believe that's why John 4.18 says this. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We should be so motivated for the love of God that we want to please Him in all we do and in all we say. When that happens, we won't be afraid of being near Him because Hebrews 10.9 says this, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So catch what Peter is trying to tell us, that we love God, we have confidence to enter into His presence, but then he says this reverent fear of God. But fear God, Why? Why should we fear God? And yet, here in this passage, God tells us that we should conduct ourselves 
with fear. Fear about what? Well, take a look. Revelation 14, 7 says this. An angel says this. Said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. It says, Fear God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And again, what First Peter says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So you know there's a lot of theologians out there, a lot of even ministers, I think, that have this different idea about the fear of God. They'll actually say, well, I don't like using the word fear, so we'll use the word revere. You know, revere God. Or they'll say, uh, hold him in awe in replace of the word fear. Because it kind of takes the sting out of this whole idea of fearing a heavenly father, the fear we have today. And it's kind of intimidating. So just for all you guys, I looked up the word fear in the Greek. It means phobos. It's a word we get for phobia. What do phobias do? We fear phobias, don't we? The fear of heights, the fear of whatever, the fear of water, you know, all those things. It's a fear. And that's what this word means. But why should I fear God? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Ideally, I should be holy because I love God, right? We've said that. I think we've hopefully grabbed onto that and we can run with it a little bit. But ideally, I love what I do and I'm holy because I love God. But too often, people tend to get lazy in their relationship with God. Okay, we get lazy. We kind of let things slide by in our life. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You miss one Sunday, it's no, one Sunday, it's no big deal. You miss two Sundays, well, maybe I shouldn't. You miss three, four, five. What happens? Real easy to miss Sunday, isn't it? Because we let a little bit slide and it just gets easier. It doesn't have to be missing Sundays. It could be a small sin in our life. Well, this, this won't hurt me this time. And then we do it again because the first time was pretty cool. And then we do it more and more. And then we want to accept that sin into our life. Somebody said we must never get so comfortable with our holy God that we forget the important part of our relationship. He was, he is, and always will be in control of our lives. In other words, God is God and we are not. And if we forget that, if we don't have that idea, we can begin to think that God will be happy no matter what we do. We have to understand we're part of God's team. We're supposed to be set apart doing what God wants us to do. So we say that and we say, I'm doing all these good things, so he's going to overlook this little thing in my life. I want because God likes me, and frankly, maybe God's paying more attention to the apples over there than he is the cookies. And we kind of get that idea. Maybe he's watching this group over here. He won't see what I'm doing over here. And we let that happen. Knowing that I and others are prone to that kind of thinking, get this, God reminds us that fearing God is not a bad thing. Okay? That's why that term fear God shows up several times in both the Old Testament and New Testaments. We need to understand this fear. You see, fearing God is what often keeps us from doing stupid things. Just put it out there, kind of blunt. 
What is most sins? What is we get in trouble a lot of times doing? And we look back, well, it was just stupid. You know, and we think, why did I do that? Then we have the fear of God. I heard a story of a popular preacher uh, that was away on business and was at a downtown hotel. And that evening he came back from all of his meetings and got on the hotel. And as he got on, these two other women, very nice-looking women, got on with him. While as he's going up, the floor is a real high hotel. He soon come to realize these just weren't two ladies, but they were two ladies of the evening. Okay? You know, prostitutes. Okay? And the closer they got to the floor, they asked him, what floor are you getting off on? And he said, nine, ten, or whatever. Oh, by the way, that's one we're getting off on. He soon come to realize he was being propositioned by these ladies, and he started getting real nervous and started this pit in his stomach. And, you know, one part of his mind is saying, hey, this is kind of cool. And then the other part saying, no, this is not. And as the doors opened, he looked at the ladies and said, ladies, this is not going to happen tonight. He got off and went to his room, and he said he just melted because he knew that what he was about to do or could have done could have ruined everything in his life, from his ministry to his marriage and everything. And my question is, what's the difference in us? End of the story says that he just feared God to the point of his love of God that kept him from doing those things. See, fearing God often keeps us from doing stupid things in our life. You see, God disciplines its people if they decide to do bad stuff. God disciplines us if we do stupid stuff. And we need to understand that. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? It says, My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? God loves us. So understand this. God loves us and he will discipline us. And it will not be fun if he has to do it. I mean, I remember my dad and I can't remember my, my real dad ever really disciplining me. Because I didn't live with my dad. I just went to him on weekends. So that was always a fun time. And now I'm not saying I never did anything wrong. But I don't ever remember my dad disciplining. I remember my mom and my stepdad you know, took out the belt a few times, and, you know, not that I was ever perfect, but, you know, I was darn close. (laughs) But I also learned mom and dad, or my mom and stepdad, always made us go think about what we did. Think about what we did. I thought about it. They always gave us 10, 15 minutes to think about what we did, so I thought, well, this is stupid. I'm going to put on several pairs of underwear. (laughs) Had to learn. I had to yell out a little bit because it didn't really hurt to let them know that they were getting their job done, you know. But God's going to discipline us if we do bad stuff. And it actually says, be ready for it. God loves us and he will discipline us. Discipline me when I really don't think I deserve it, but he does. And sometimes being disciplined by God can be a serious issue. I mean, just look at the church in Corinth. Congregation in Greece that Paul had started. Christians there had fallen into a lazy faith. The church there were very argumentative. They were divisive. Sometimes they were just plain mean to each other. And Paul wrote to them a couple of letters. And in the first letter he wrote them in 1 Corinthians, he talked to them about their communion service. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and 22, he says, When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, he says? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have done nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Paul says, no, I will not. Because I'm not going to commend you in that. He goes on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and even some have died. So understand, even because of the ignorant mistreatment of each other at the Lord's Supper, Paul says even some became ill, they became sick, and some even died. You really don't want to tick God off, do you? I mean, let's think about it. God, our Heavenly Father, we don't want to make him so mad that he does this to us. You don't want to make him angry, and there's a reason to fear God, and wise people do fear God in a good way, because we know we're not perfect. But if you love him, you will fear him. Fear will come in second. Fear won't be the first thing. The love of God will be first, and then this fear. Fear can be a great motivator, but it won't be the first thought in your mind. Let me ask somebody, ask you all this. How many fear electricity? If you've been popped by it, you fear it a little bit, don't you? Okay? Now, we all realize, right, there's electricity all around us. I mean, some of you are sitting closer to electrical outlets. I mean, I got one right here on each side, you know, I could stand on. Not scared of it. Now, if I was going to take the little screw out and take a screwdriver and kind of poke down in there and see what's going on with it, with the power still on, it won't take me long to realize it's not a good thing. It's fear. Now, we don't really fear electricity. We don't feel that fear, that power, right? But what would happen if I take this knife? <laughs> Already. <gasps> I'm not going to do it. And those of you say that, no, wait for, wait for it. Those of you say you don't fear electricity, I dare you to come take this knife and put it in one of those little sockets. Let us know why. Exactly, me first. I'm not that crazy, am I? Why do we fear electricity like that? Exactly. It's a respect thing. We know it's powerful. That same electricity can kill you. That same electricity can bring you back to life. I've watched it. I did it for years. People, no heart rate, no heartbeat. Bam! Nine times out of ten, it didn't work. But in my 35 years career, I brought five people back. Shocking and giving the drugs. I got the little pins to prove it. You know, but we fear. It's the same with God. It's it's a respectful fear. It's a fear of what God really could do. It's a fear of what God really could do in our life if he did things bad enough and he needed to get our attention. So, so many times we look at this fear. Whenever I go in a room, whenever I need power for convenience or a life-saving device, I go looking for that socket because I know and I love and I appreciate the power that's inside the box. It's the same way I fear God. I don't want to go doing or keep on doing what I know is wrong and bring judgment down on me, but that's not the first thing I think about when I think about God and the fear of God. The first thing that comes to my mind, and hopefully your mind is this, is all the incredible things He has supplied 
for me by his power. That what he has given to us, all the blessings we have in him and because of him, that we respect him to that point. <clears throat> now, one last thought. It's a good thing that our God is a fearsome God and that he has the, the power to defeat mighty armies. He has the power to destroy entire nations. He has the power to flood the entire world and the power to crush the might of even Satan himself. I mean, here we are. We're talking about the great I am. And can I just tell you, you don't mess with the great I am. You're not going to toy with him. But the same God who can destroy any power of evil on the face of the earth, can you get this, is your God. He's your God. And that's a good thing because he has your back. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, get this, if God is for us, who can be against us? This same God that we fear who can strike us down is the same God who was our God, who was our Father, who was our Abba, who was our Daddy in heaven. He says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave up for us all. How will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? Knowing all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors of him who loved us. He says, for I am neither for that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in our creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And who's going to separate us? You see, our God may be a fearsome and powerful God, but get this, He is our fearsome and powerful God. Don't forget that. He's ours while praying one day, a woman asked God, who are you? And he answered, I am. But who is I am? She asked. I am the power. I am peace. I am grace. I am joy. I am strength. I am safety. I am love. I am shelter. I am the creator. I am the comforter. I am the beginning and the end. I am the way, the truth, and the life. With tears in her eyes, she said, I think I understand. She says, but who am I? God tenderly wiped her tears from her eyes and whispered, You are mine. You are mine. This God that is to be feared, this God who is watching us, this God who gave his son to die for us, he's our God. This God that can destroy nations, he can destroy any powers, he has power over Satan, power over sin, power over everything, is our God. And he wants to be our God. And he wants to love us to the earth and back. But he calls us to this holiness, to be set apart, to be different from the world. And it starts right here with us.